Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. My podcast can be found at my website, which is bigamateurism.com, and I've got the episodes there, the show notes, the show description, and some resources that I rely upon. And I also have been writing in a blog. I haven't been doing that as much recently because I've been focusing on the podcast, but I bring you through up to the oral argument in Austin. And I think there's some good stuff there. You can check that out at cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. My podcast can be found on all the major third-party directories, so you can check it out there as well. All right, so I did my initial summary of the oral argument in Austin day before yesterday. And now I want to do a little bit of a cleanup on some issues I probably should have addressed in that episode, but didn't. And then also talk about some of the things that weren't discussed that I think are really important. And then a tactic that the NCAA used at oral argument, that Seth Waxman used at oral argument, and that the NCAA National Office uses all the time. And those are conflation arguments where they try to conflate the interests of the revenue-producing athletes in the Power Five with the interests of Division Three non-revenue-producing sports athletes. Actually, I guess that's redundant because all sports in Division Three are non-revenue. So that's an important tactic that the NCAA has used. And I'm going to talk about that because it ties into the race issue as well. But I want to start, actually, and then there's one more thing I want to do. I'm going to talk a little bit about some statements that were issued by Mark Emmert, NCAA president, and then Donald Remy, who is the chief legal counsel and liaison at the NCAA national office. Uh, you know, Emmert's a $4 million a year guy. Remy, I think, is at about $1.5 million. And they both issued statements after the oral argument that I'm going to talk a little bit about. And Emmert talks about the oral argument and, you know, spouts the party line. But in that video conference that he did, it was essentially a video press conference. And Emmert, you know, he's kind of been in the NCAA witness protection program for the last several months. And that's probably not a bad thing for the NCAA. But he comes out and as he tends to do, he speaks outside of his knowledge and speaks in these grand, bold proclamations about what he's going to do without any self-awareness that he's he's responsible and has been all along for the things he's saying need to be fixed right away. And he got called out 
out on that a little bit on a gender equity issue. And I want to just talk briefly about uh, gender equity as as well. And I guess I'll, I'll just go ahead and start with that because I'm going to talk about gender equity in detail. And I think I'm going to get to that after I finish up with the Austin Oral Argument episodes because it has become such a prominent issue through this NCAA tournament. And, you know, as I said in, I think it was episode nine, I think when this tournament is reverse engineered on the men's side, and we know what's happening, that there's some bad stuff happening on the women's side, but I think when it's reverse engineered on the men's side, it's not going to be all of this CBS Turner, Capital One, rah, rah, rah. I think there are going to be some distressing stories to be told because these kids are being treated like cattle. And the, the goal here, again, is just to try to get this tournament to the finish line so the NCAA can get its big paycheck from CBS Turner, whatever that is this year. I don't know if there are any adjustments have been made, but that's it. That's the sole goal. And I think that the measures, the, the means that the NCAA is used to get to that goal are not going to be very pretty when they are viewed with the benefit of hindsight and outside the context of NCAA, CBS Turner propaganda. So let's talk a little bit about this gender equity issue, just to kind of frame it as we're hearing stuff coming out of the tournament. And it's going to be in the news because the gender equity advocates, particularly, and this started with women's basketball, you know, and the obvious disparities in the facilities between uh, what the women are getting in uh, Texas, I think the tournament's in San Antonio and then in Indiana, are stark and substantial. And that came to light and Mark Emmert's been doing the NCAA two-step, trying to employ his president academic speak to try to deflect responsibility and buy a little time. And that, that's what he does best. So he's been making statements and he's just digging the hole deeper, which he's very good at doing when he actually is called to the carpet to have to respond to a real problem and offer a real solution. So when I frame the issues for gender equity, I think there's some things that are really important to understand about the NCAA's historical relationship to women's athletics, to Title IX, and then to the evolution of women's basketball in particular, because women's basketball is a product, I believe, that could be a money maker across the board if it were marketed properly. And, and that's a, a big part of this conversation. And the other thing about that's unique about women's basketball is that it has, in women's sports, the highest concentration of African-American athletes of any women's sport. And here, I'm talking again about the Power Five schools, but I think that's true down through a lot of Division One, And then you start to see it becoming wider and wider and wider until you get down into Division Three, where you, know, you have predominantly white teams. And because of the demographic, the change in the demographic in the women's basketball pool at the highest levels of competition, some of the same problems that exist in football, big-time football and big-time men's basketball present themselves, but nobody talks about it. And the reason they don't talk about it is that they're so afraid of making a gender equity foot fault, but also because it's an inconvenient topic. And you have kids coming in with virtually identical uh, personal stories and family histories and personal circumstances as the men's basketball players at the highest level, and they're dealing with some of the same problems. And these female athletes at the highest level, particularly Division I women's basketball, they're working 50 hours a week too. <laughs> and I think that it's interesting the way Emmert framed some of these issues in his comments as this you know disparity in facilities has played out. He doesn't want to isolate women's basketball. He's trying to make it a broader gender equity discussion because that takes the focus off of some inconvenient facts. And that is that you have a population of black women's basketball players at the highest level who aren't being treated fairly. And, and it highlights focusing on women's basketball focuses on race. And, and the NCAA doesn't want to touch that. Doesn't want to touch that. So uh, you have this, this historical relationship between the NCAA and women's sports, which isn't a friendly one. And I just want to say this. I'm going to try to keep this uh, to, to a couple minutes here. But in 1972, Title IX was passed 
in Congress. And contrary to common misconception, it does not apply only to women's athletics. It applies to all gender issues, men, women, across higher education, any aspect of higher education, but it has become popularized and uh, kind of framed in the public consciousness through Title IX efforts in women's sports in higher education. So the law's passed in 72, it's phased in, and the first compliance year was in 1978. And from the very beginning, the NCAA aggressively lobbied against having Title IX apply to intercollegiate athletics. And you had a National Women's College Sports Association that was actually founded in 1971, the Association for Intercollegiate Athletics for Women. It's the AIAW. And, uh, you know, you have to be, (laughs) you're going back into the archives uh, to remember that, but I remember that. And then the AIAW was trying to fold its membership into the mainstream of college sports. And the NCAA at first was just completely indifferent. There were no women's sports at, in the NCAA until the very late 60s. So it was a boys only club. And that culture transferred over into the passage of Title IX to its implementation. And then just to show you where the NCAA was really coming from, in 1974, the NCAA had a coordinated effort to oppose Title IX. And the NCAA employed its boys in the Senate, its its power hitters in the Senate, including Texas Republican Senator John Tower, who offered an NCAA-friendly amendment to Title IX that would have excluded all intercollegiate athletics from Title IX's requirements and Title IX jurisdiction. And then that didn't get a lot of traction because it was so obviously uh, inconsistent with the intent and purpose of Title IX. Then New York's Democrat Senator Jacob Javits, you know, through the NCAA and with all their arm twisting behind the scenes, which they're so very good at, he offered another NCAA friendly amendment. And it, this one said that if athletics departments didn't use federal funding, then Title IX would not apply to athletics generally or to a particular sport. Read big time football, big time men's basketball. And initially, the Javits Amendment had support and it was part of the initial proposal to Title IX regulations as they were being developed and then it got bounced out. But the point of of that and the history clearly shows that the NCAA has never been serious about gender equity. And today it, it only addresses it at the most symbolic level. And you see all these expressions of commitments to gender equity in all of their documents. It's in their constitution. It's in their their bylaws. It's in their advertising. It's in all of their propaganda. It's in all of their work through the governing boards and through all of the committees. And they have committee after committee after committee after committee committed to gender equity. And it's done nothing. And what's happening right now exposes that. And I think it's really important to shine a light on that because it shows just how disingenuous the NCAA is. Because the NCAA is now in this debate about name, image, and likeness and its quest for the iron throne of college sports regulation. It is using gender equity as bait, in my judgment, for moderate female senators and for female federal judges to think that if we pay athletes or big-time athletes get a disproportionate share of this ridiculously conceived zero-sum market for name, image, and likeness compensation, then all that money that would otherwise be funding Title IX initiatives is going to go away and women's sports are going to be decimated. That's a big, fat lie. The NCAA, through its own conduct, through its own history, through its through its disingenuous rhetoric, is showing right now they don't give a damn about women's sports. And it's time for the women to stay stand up. And it's time. I think there's some common ground here. There could be some beautiful common ground here between the women's basketball players and the men's basketball players, because they do have some things in common. And I would love to see more cooperation there. I think that's an untapped resource that would have really powerful resonance in some of these athletes' rights issues. Okay, so that's my my pre-rant. Uh, but I'm gonna go I'm gonna dive deep into that in separate episodes and kind of talk about how the NCAA has handled gender equity, how it's largely opposed it, and then how it has used it for political purposes to manipulate its interests behind the scene in federal courts and in Congress and state legislatures as well. Okay, so now, so I want to talk about something that I left out of the episode yesterday. And I I just assumed 
that it was kind of well understood that everybody accepted the fact that the NCAA was seeking absolute antitrust immunity and that that was kind of the part of the two choices, antitrust immunity for the NCAA or the status quo in the Ninth Circuit, this abandoned two dysfunctional status quo that was reaffirmed in the Austin case in the Ninth Circuit. But I want to make that explicitly clear and I want to talk about how Seth Waxman made that point using some of the same dishonest tactics that it has used in public rhetoric on its campaign in the Senate. And it has used explicitly in its appeals in Austin, both to the Ninth Circuit and to the U.S. Supreme Court. So I'm going to need to break out my transcript here. Okay, I've got it now. Had to take a little pause there. So in this 90-page transcript, I've got it already dog-eared and highlighted and tabbed. And I've got the, I've tabbed Waxman's comments as Iron Throne. Because remember, this request for antitrust immunity through the federal judiciary is identical to the antitrust immunity they explicitly sought in the Senate and are continuing to seek, I, I believe. But they have been completely dishonest about that in the U.S. Supreme Court. And I talked about that in my episode, I think it was episode nine. But I just want to show you uh, where uh, Seth Waxman talks about this and how he talks about it. And then I want to do a, a brief compare and contrast with the comments that Mark Emmert and Don Remy made on March 31st, right after the oral argument. So early on, at the very beginning uh, of his argument, and this was in response to a question by, no, it's not. This is just part of his actual opening statement. He says, uh, Waxman says, decades of judicial experience show that that distinction between professional and amateur is both sensible and administrable And the alternative is perpetual litigation and judicial superintendence as the past 12 years in the Ninth Circuit so vividly illustrate and portend. Ah, well said. Well said, if you're the NCAA. Then, and this was in response to a question from Justice Breyer, Waxman says, we think that antitrust courts lack the authority to redefine the central differentiating feature of the NCAA's pro-competitive product, particularly where the history and context show so plainly, and then he, he's interrupted. But that's, uh, that's an Iron Throne plug. And then, let's see... Here we go. And this is where Waxman is saying, and this is in response to an exchange with Justice Kavanaugh. He comes out and says, after saying that that he doesn't want the courts involved, he says, we are not asking for an exemption from the rule of reason, which is just, I mean, just an outright dishonest statement. They are absolutely seeking antitrust immunity. And everybody in the courtroom knew that. Let's see. So then, let's see. What does he say here? Oh, okay. Here we go. And this is in response to questions by Justice Barrett. Uh, Waxman says, it offends the antitrust laws for a court to appoint itself as a superintendent to second guess those judgments, blurring the distinction between college and professional sports and facilitating successive lawsuits and treble damage awards, all based on supposed evidence that, al- that an alternative regime of the court's devising wouldn't diminish net viewer interest. Okay. Let's see. I mean, this is just some amazing stuff. Okay. And th- now this is actually Justice Breyer opining. And so he buys in lock, stock, and barrel to the NCAA's quest for the Iron Throne. And he says, I worry a lot about judges getting into the business of deciding how amateur sports should be run. He just says it. I mean, if only Waxman would just say that, you know, just say that, Seth. But but Justice Breyer cut, cut through all the malarkey and he got right to it. And then at the very end, like this was in Waxman's rebuttal where he says, and this is actually the very last thing he said at the when Judge Roberts closed out the proceedings and submitted the case. So Waxman says, once courts start drawing their own lines, and according to the government here, everything is factual and depends on the record, perpetual litigation and judicial superintendents are inevitable. So that's Waxman's go-to is perpetual litigation and judicial superintendents. This is code for antitrust immunity. Now, after that argument, there were two statements that came out. Emmert did his video conference 
But I'm going to start with Re- Donald Remy. He's the NCAA chief legal officer. He issued a very terse statement that is not unlike substantively the statement he issued in March of 2019 when he announced that the NCAA and the Power Five conferences were going to appeal in lockstep Judge Wilkins' injunction on education benefits. So he says, and this is from March 31st, and it was, uh, let's see, 1.21 p.m. after the oral argument. We are grateful to the court for the opportunity to present our case. Today, we believe we demonstrated why, under antitrust laws, the NCAA should have ample latitude to ensure college sports are played by student-athletes and not paid professionals. As we argued, the lower court's decision encourages judicial micromanagement, invites never-ending litigation as the NCAA seeks to improve the college athletic experience and threatens the critical distinction between professional and college sports. We look forward to the court's decision. I don't know about that last sentence. I, I, I wonder if there was some discussion about that one. So then in this video conference that Emmert does, he talks about the Supreme Court case and its impact on college sports. And I would just want to read, it's only two paragraphs, so I guess I'll I'll read the whole thing because this also ties into one of the other themes that I want to talk about. And this is the conflation between the interests of power five schools and then low-level division one schools. But here's what Emmert says. The Supreme Court today heard oral arguments about the NCAA's authority to determine rules regarding benefits tied to academics that student athletes can receive. The lawsuit challenges the rules that seek to preserve the distinction between college and professional sports and and are a essential to providing academic opportunities for nearly half a million college athletes each year. Okay, I have to stop here for two reasons. One, this half a million number is another tool that the NCAA uses to conflate the interests of Alabama football and, you know, Smith College rowing. Okay. But he's saying that Austin is threatening the collegiate model and the amateurism-based model because it (laughs) required the NCAA to step aside on education-related benefits that the NCAA refused to provide. So he's saying that uh, this distinction, amateurism, has to be maintained to provide academic opportunities. And they're challenging an injunction that essentially requires them to uh, allow education-related opportunities. And that's just classic NCAA Orwellian doublespeak. So here's the second paragraph. The case is about an antitrust issue that really focuses on who has the authority and ability to make decisions around college sports in general. This question, regardless of what the Supreme Court does or doesn't decide, won't resolve whether or not student-athletes should be quote-unquote paid. Emmert said, My opinion, and more importantly, the opinions of the 1,100 schools that participate in college sports, is that student-athletes need to be students, not employees of the universities, that the relationship between a university and a college athlete needs to be one of university and student, not of employer and employee. So this, the first sentence of that second paragraph, The case is about an antitrust issue that really focuses on who has the authority and ability to make decisions around college sports in general. That is like a a, a huge statement coming from Emmert because that that takes the mask off of the quest for the Iron Throne. And what he's saying there and what Seth Waxman was really saying in all those oblique comments and what Remy was saying in, in his less obvious comments is that the NCAA and only the NCAA. NCAA should sit in the iron throne of college sports regulation. And, and that's what this is all about. So Emmer just, you know, I, who knows what was in his mind and whether he was off script there, or maybe he thought he was on script. Sometimes it's hard to tell how good a grip Emmert has on some of these legal issues, but he just rips the mask off with that single sentence. And I think that's um, consequential. And then just a few more thoughts before I transition into my next discussion in this episode, and that's what was left out of the Supreme Court argument. And that is just the sheer audacity of what the NCAA is asking for here. And they have been so effective in their litigation and congressional campaigns to couch their quests for antitrust immunity in such a way that uh, it just the impact, the the reality of what they're truly doing here doesn't come through. And I think that got exposed 
at this oral argument. And you have to think about some of the, the ways that the justices characterized what the NCAA was saying here. The NCAA was coming in and in its Iron Throne quest to eliminate federal courts entirely as an external re regulator of college sports, they were saying that federal judges have absolutely no business applying traditional, uncontested, undisputable basic principles of federal antitrust law to the NCAA. And the only basis for that is that the NCAA defines its product with draconian compensation limits that in any other context would be a per se slam dunk violation of antitrust laws. And they are saying that this is the rare case where those very limits are what define the product. And I think when the justices took a look at the sheer absurdity of that argument, the sheer arrogance of that argument, and the sheer unfairness of that argument, they were led to uh, use some pretty strong language. So when Brett Kavanaugh said that, Mr. Waxman, your argument is circular and somewhat disturbing, I think what he was saying is that you're coming into our court and you are asking us to place you above federal antitrust law in a way that no other entity has ever been placed above antitrust law through the judicial system. And you're doing it because you want us to accept the proposition that your per se uh, illegal compensation limits are essential to your definition of the product. And I think part of the theme that came through, and this was true with uh, Justice Kavanaugh, it came through with Justice Gorsuch, it came through with Justice Kagan uh, in a different way through Justice Alito, and then also through uh, General Prelogger's comments, is that you are so outside of any, any rational approach to your business model that we just can't believe you're making these arguments. So, you know, Kavanaugh said it was circular and disturbing. Gorsuch, who's a very uh, kind of laid back, not laid back, but very reasonable, very understated kind of guy. So when he makes characterizations, he's very careful to kind of take the edge off of it. But when he was talking about these compensation limits in the context of the NCAA's monopsony power, he said that that's just very unusual. And, and that was strong language for Gorsuch. But he was making the same point as Kavanaugh. And then when uh, Justice Kagan came in and just said, look, I'm not moved by all your history garbage. The fact of the matter is what's happening here is naked price fixing in a market that you dominate. That's the long and short of it. And that was very strong language. And then General Prelogger, who was very uh, measured in her language, very down the middle, very conservative lowercase c in the way that she sort of analyzed the case, she said that what the NCAA was asking for here would be an extraordinary departure from traditional antitrust law and traditional antitrust analyses. And all of those characterizations are absolutely correct. And there's Seth Waxman speaking with a sense of purpose and self-righteousness and arrogance that reflects the client he represents. And Seth Waxman's a brilliant advocate. He's had a brilliant career, but he is not doing his legacy any favors representing the National Collegiate Athletic Association. And that'll be a good segue into the next portion of this episode, which is on the things that were left out at the oral argument day before yesterday. And one of them was any discussion about the NCAA's campaign in the Senate for explicit antitrust immunity. There was very little discussion about what was the NCAA was doing in Congress. Now, there was some discussion about Congress generally as being the appropriate place to address questions of blanket immunities from uh, pro-competition -comp laws. But there was zero discussion. And again, I think this is a shortcoming in the way that the athletes' lawyers handled this case all along, is that this antitrust immunity issue has revealed itself most clearly in the NCAA's campaign in Congress and through the work of the working group. And I did an entire episode on that, but that didn't come up. I don't know how that doesn't come up. 
And then there was virtually no discussion about O'Bannon 2, the Ninth Circuit's O'Bannon 2 decision, which in my judgment is foundational to understanding the dysfunction in the choices that this court wound up with at, uh, because of the way the issues were framed by the parties. And O'Bannon, uh, in this transcript that I get, there's an index to it, which shows every word and where it was mentioned. And you can kind of do a quick look to see what the emphases were. But there was, oh, I think there were only two or three references to O'Bannon. And I haven't gone back to see whether they related to O'Bannon one or two specifically, but I did kind of just breeze through them and none of them were consequential and none of them were raised in the context of being the predicate for the Austin ruling and the Austin injunction and this framework of education versus non-education benefits. And again, the reason that wasn't on the table is because athletes chose not to put it on the table. And if they had decided to cross petition and to argue for an open market for the value of the athlete services, they would have had to take on O'Bannon too. And I don't know how you can really assess these issues in this context in the Austin ruling without a thorough vetting of O'Bannon too, because that is the root source of a lot of the tensions that express themselves at oral argument, which, as I've said, is great for plaintiffs, class action, antitrust attorneys suing the NCAA, but not so good for the athletes themselves. There was virtually no discussion of race. Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh sort of bumped up against it. Alito actually was a little more direct. And he just, in his first question to Waxman, he just laid out the scenario as he saw it and laid it out in terms that were very pro-athlete and the, how much they work. The, he was basically making the case for the uh, exploitation arguments. But he didn't specifically mention race. And I have to believe that the justices who are talking about those issues probably have that in the back of their minds, but nobody wants to say it out loud. And, and that's, you know, it's a much larger question that I addressed in some of the very early episodes. I think I addressed it in the first episode, is that our fear of talking about the obviousness of race in the big time college sports business model is preventing us from offering and seeking and enacting reasonable changes to this dysfunctional and racially tinged business model. And that takes me to another related omission, and that is a complete absence of any discussion by the athlete's attorney, Jeffrey Kessler, on the exploitation model that is uh, the primary definition of the NCAA's business practice. And I talked about this when I talked about Miles Brand in episode eight or nine, I can't remember, maybe it was episode 10. And his conceptualization of the collegiate model, which is a perfect definition of exploitation, whether you view it as racial exploitation or simply labor exploitation. But the only discussion about exploitation that occurred during that oral argument came in the comments and observations from Justice Alito and Justice Kavanaugh, and then Seth Waxman in response to one of Kavanaugh's observations. And that uh, comes from the clip that I played at the very beginning of this episode. And that was an exchange between Justice Kavanaugh and Seth Waxman that is very revealing on multiple fronts. But before I get to that, I just want to say that when Jeffrey Kessler was arguing for the athletes, he really had nothing to say at the normative level, at the justice level, at the fairness level. He wasn't speaking that language. He was speaking a language within the, within the four corners of the rule of reason analysis that was designed to achieve this very narrow affirmance of the opinion below that had virtually nothing to do with justice for the athletes. And the outcome he was uh, advocating for had, it was going to have virtually no impact, no benefit to the athletes. And so I played the full exchange at the beginning, but I just want to focus on this exploitation issue and then how Seth Waxman responded to it because it was really important. And Kavanaugh just put it right on the table there. And when you put the exploitation issue on the table in stark terms, the NCAA looks foolish trying to defend it, which is one of the reasons I, I'm wondering why the athlete's own advocate <laughs> didn't put the NCAA in that position by going straight to the heart of the matter, which is the exploitation of revenue-producing athletes, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. So here is what Kavanaugh said at the very beginning of his questioning to Waxman. He says, and good morning, Mr. Waxman. I want to pick up from Justice Kagan and Justice Gorsuch and identify some issues of concern to me as I look at this. I start from the idea that the antitrust laws 
should not be a cover for exploitation of the student-athletes. So that is a concern, an overarching concern here. So Justice Kavanaugh is framing the issue in a way that is completely subsumed by this basic premise, and that is this this uh, business model is fundamentally exploitative. And then he goes into his analysis of how circular and disturbing the NCAA's rationalization for that business model is. And then he makes a couple of other observations. And then he uh, says, so those are the concerns I have initially interested in your response. And then Waxman says, and I'm going to go through his whole answer here because it really is revealing because he just started doing the NCAA two-step and he's just throwing stuff on the wall, hoping something is going to stick because he has no intelligent response to those concerns and those observations. So here's what Waxman says. The notion that these amateurism rules were imposed or constitute a cover for exploitation of athletes is A, wrong, and B, not an antitrust issue. It may very well be that a policy issue that policymakers like legislatures can address about whether they think an amateur, the amateurism model that is, as the economists supporting us say, has produced perhaps the most pro-competitive product in American industrial history is worth it. Okay, there's more, but I have to stop there. Because in that single paragraph, Seth Waxman has misled the United States Supreme Court because it isn't wrong, number one, that these athletes aren't being exploited and that the NCAA's business model isn't cover for exploitation. But this statement that there's some rational policy discussion that's being discussed in state legislatures or in Congress is simply dishonest because Seth Waxman knows for sure He knows, because he's been part of the strategy, that the NCAA is seeking some way, whether it's through, through federal preemption in Congress or through a dormant commerce clause in Florida that's going to be uh, forthcoming, I believe, that a primary prong of their overall exploitation model and exploitation strategy is to eliminate state legislatures or any other uh, decision maker from having any role and having any say in whether there should be a disruption to the NCAA's monopoly over imposing its amateurism-based compensation limits. So these very state legislatures that Seth Waxman refers to in a response to a U.S. Supreme Court justice's question, and that is, it may very well be a policy issue that policymakers like legislatures can address about whether they think the amateurism model is worth preserving. And the NCAA has gone to extraordinary lengths, and it hasn't finished yet, it's not stopped, to prevent state legislatures from having any role, or any legislature from having any role that could conflict with the NCAA's regulatory power and with their imposition of exploitative, amateurism-based compensation limits. Then Waxman goes on, and then he's going back to Board of Regents. He says, Board of Regents is 80, uh, I think, uh, 37 years old. But we think that the observation that the court made in Board of Regents about the value that consumers place on the tradition of amateur intercollegiate athletics is just as true today. This is the perfect time to point out again that every penny of Seth Waxman's legal fees, every penny of Jeffrey Kessler's legal fees. Every penny of uh, his co-counsel Berman's legal fees are paid by the revenue generated by elite division one men's basketball players because the NCAA national office subsidizes all of those fees. And it sounds great when, you know, when we talk about the athletes, attorneys, winning their attorney's fees from the NCAA as if that is somehow a great thing for the athletes. But the fact of the matter is that all of that money's coming from the same pot, and it's a pot sitting at the NCAA national office generated by this billion-dollar-a-year revenue stream from the CBS-Turner March Madness contract. So whether, however it's denominated, whether that money's going into Seth Waxman's pocket or whether it's going into Jeffrey Kessler or, or his co-counsel Berman's pocket, all that money is being paid from the labor of Division I men's basketball players, the overwhelming majority of whom are African-American. And that did not come up 
at oral argument. The other thing is there was virtually no intelligent discussion about the nature of the relationship between the athletes and the universities. And that expresses itself through the grant of an athletics scholarship. Justice Alito sort of bumped up against that when he was talking to Waxman, when he was communicating with Waxman. And he said, look, these guys are already being paid. He said they're being paid through lower admission standards. That was an interesting <laughs> twist on compensation. And he said they're also being paid because they, they get tuition, room, and board. And that is a form of payment. Seth Waxman outright denied that. And that was a, in my judgment, just not a, not a straight shooting denial because you have to concede. In answering that question, Seth Waxman should have conceded that the reason that the athletes are brought in is because of their athletics ability. And uh, let me see if I can find this here, how Waxman characterizes it, because this was a buzz term that he used several times. So just for precision's sake, I'm going to just read to you what Alito said and then how Waxman responded. So he says, um, this is Alito, but in fact, they are paid, they being the athletes. They get lower admission standards. They get tuition, room, and board, and other things. That's a form of pay. So the distinction is not whether they're going to be paid. It's the form in which they're going to be paid and how much they're going to be paid. Isn't that right, Mr. Waxman? It is not right. The principle, the NCAA for decades has defined pay to mean compensation in excess of two things. Number one, allowances for educational expenses and educational can include both academic and athletic. That is the reasonable and necessary expense to obtain an education. And the NCAA, that's their pat line. When you go back to what happened in the 1950s and during the debate over the sanity code and then the insistence by big-time powerful football interests that they abandon any conceptualization of amateurism and having admission standards based in large part on academic fit, not on athletic talent. They just threw that in the trash can and said, these are pure athletic scholarships. We're recruiting these kids for their athletic ability. And that is the nature of the relationship. So what, what Waxman does and what the NCAA does is they conflate the way that those costs are categorized. So they categorize them as education related because they are tied to a quote unquote scholarship, but they don't say what the scholarship is for. And that really is an important uh, distinction because Waxman really tried to uh, conflate that point. I don't know. I'm not, I'm not going to try to pull it out. But no matter how you categorize it, no matter what you call it, the underlying purpose for the payment and the inducement, and it is undoubtedly an inducement, is to get the athletic skill, talent, ability, and labor of the person you're giving that money to, to bring them in so that they can make money for you and make money for your university and bring prestige and power and social currency and all the things that I, I talked about in episode two in terms of why big time universities are in this game, why universities are in the game of big time college sports. So the quid pro quo for these kids that they go out in these uh, Power Five schools and the big time programs, you know, Alabama football, Clemson football, Ohio State football, Duke, Kentucky, UNC, UCLA basketball, all, you know, all, all of the power programs, they are competing for the best athletic talent in the age group on the planet. And they go worldwide, particularly in basketball, they scour the planet for that talent and then they compete for it. And they can't pay them anything more than the athletic scholarship, so they compete with all these bells and whistles that they try to use as, as, as inducements, in-kind benefit inducements. And there is no question that the quid pro quo in that transaction, and it is a business transaction, is that these kids get a full scholarship up to the full cost of attendance in exchange for world-class athletic talent, ability, labor, performance, and return on investment. That's the transaction. And it's explicit in the athletics scholarship. And if if I'm Jeffrey Kessler, I'm jumping on that horse and I'm just riding it until it drops. Because that, that was such an obvious 
point to pounce on. And it's so fundamental to the way that this whole myth of the student athlete and the educational model and all these things and the collegiate model that the NCAA relies on. This this is the dagger in the heart of that because they've gotten away with fundamentally mischaracterizing the relationship between these world-class talents in football and men's basketball and the universities who are bringing them in to make billions of dollars. And Kavanaugh got to that kind of with broad brushes. But, you know, Waxman goes back to his NCAA rope-a-dope when it comes to the nature of the relationship between the athletes and the universities. And then another thing, and this is a really big omission, but this omission is present in almost all of the discussions about antitrust litigation initiated by athletes challenging NCAA compensation limits. And that is that antitrust law is not the best vehicle because of the limitations of it and its focus on the commercial analysis. And when you go through the rule of reason analysis, you see how easy it is to get just get sucked into the recesses of this highly complicated detailed economic analysis and expert testimony and all that stuff. And that because of that, it's not really well served to to address or solve or identify or solve any of these larger cultural issues or issues that really are justice oriented. And one of the downsides, I think, in the way that that antitrust has been applied as as kind of the go-to remedy is that that type of lawsuit really doesn't give life and context to the uh, real business model of big time college sports. And I said this in my last episode, my summary episode, that it was clear to me that the justices had very little understanding or very superficial understanding of the business model in terms of who the true power players were and the relationship between the the NCAA is a membership and the other moving parts. And then the relationship of the NCAA national office and its governing boards to the other moving parts. And one of the reasons I wanted to frame the issue from the very beginning as these powerful, this triangle of powerful interests with big time football calling the shots, the national office essentially doing their bidding, and then men's basketball locked into this detente between big time football and the national office that gives the NCAA this endless supply of revenue through the March Madness contract with CBS and Turner. That is college sports. And if you don't understand that, you cannot make any intelligent, well-informed, thoughtful judgments from a value standpoint. So you have these justice issues that are being masked by the antitrust analysis. So I don't think, and this is another, I would say, uh, shortcoming in the way that some of the antitrust lawyers in, in a number of these suits have approached their goal in the antitrust litigation. And their goal hasn't been to educate the court on the true business model, just enough to get them through the rule of reason analysis and to get what they need to get to a remedy and attorney's fees. But you don't have a full, broad explanation and understanding of the business model. And that came through loud and clear on Wednesday in some of the questions, like Justice Sotomayor's questions to uh, Waxman about the relationship between the big conferences who have the authority under Judge Wilkins' injunction in Austin to offer these benefits and the NCAA's interest in wanting to have control over those benefits so that they can be the sole authority on whether they are provided or not. And she didn't understand that the Power Five schools have zero incentive to offer these benefits. And the reason for that is because they're as as greedy and as exploitative as the NCAA is. So the way, and this goes back to kind of how the issues were framed in the trial court in Austin when they had to switch their strategy away from arguing for a blown amateurism door and to working within this O'Bannon model, all of a sudden the Power Five became the good guys because it was one way to place a restriction through an injunction on the NCAA that would get them to a remedy that would get them attorney's fees. But in the real world, the Power Five 
are not the athlete's friends. They are in absolute control of the market and business of big-time college sports. And in fact, a couple of the athletes' experts who were in favor of transferring this authority over to the conferences where there would be theoretically competition for education-related benefits, they referred to the Power Five as a sub-cartel. So, you know, that's an interesting antitrust question, whether if the Power Five went out on their own and, and they were operating essentially as they operate now through their autonomy, their, their preferential autonomy classification under the NCAA umbrella, whether they would be subject to antitrust liability. That's a fair question. But this notion that the Power Five conferences are just these good guys kind of operating outside of the NCAA's corruption, and they're going to come in and save the day is, is just false. It's fantasy. And I, again, I don't understand how these cases can proceed through 10 years of litigation without the decision makers understanding that fundamental reality. And in that sense, antitrust law may not be the, the best vehicle for teasing all of that out. And another argument in that vein is that when you're talking about immunities or any protection that the NCAA might get or that the Power Five might get. You have to address the social issues, the cultural issues, all of the interests of the people that are in, impacted by the business model on equal terms, and that can't happen in litigation. And that's why these decisions on immunity, exemptions, and all that stuff should be addressed to Congress. But as we have learned <laughs> in analyzing what the NCAA has done in Congress, is that they owned the Senate until January 5th of 2021. And in all these hearings, these four hearings, where there were a total, I don't know, 16 witnesses called, it was an NCAA witness list. The hearings were put together by the NCAA, run through NCAA-friendly chair people. And the outcome was to prevent the senators from understanding the business model. That wasn't a full open discussion. And that's why I thought Donna Shalala's bill in 2019 would have been a great way to go, to kind of do this grand synthesis, Carnegie Report-like analysis of college sports. And I think, you know, before there is a bill that comes out of the Senate, whether it comes from pro-athlete side, you know, Blumenthal and Booker, or from the pro-NCAA side, you know, Wicker and, and Graham and all these people, there should be a full, ranging, far-ranging, and in-depth set of hearings with subpoena power to the NCAA and the Power Five that explain the truth of the business model. And that simply hasn't come out in the antitrust litigation. It hasn't come out in the NCAA-dominated Senate. And I think there's a chance for that now, you know, with the flip in the Senate from Republican to Democrat. But the broader principle here is that antitrust law isn't the best vehicle for that. But even within that framework, the athletes' attorneys haven't really pushed hard to really tease out the truth of the business model. And in Austin is a, is a good example because they misrepresented the business model. And this notion that the Power Five conferences were going to be able to solve the monopolistic or monopsonistic behavior of the NCAA. They're, they're in lockstep. And the other thing about that, and I, I'll talk more about this when we get to uh, really breaking down the perfect storm month by month starting in 2019, is that in 2013, when the Power Five conferences, during O'Bannon, remember, during O'Bannon and during the fear of what Judge Wilkin might do, the Power Five conferences come to the NCAA and say, you know, we want to offer these additional benefits, trying to get ahead of the of any ruling that was going to be a threat to their business interests. And so they wanted to get ahead of the game a little bit. The NCAA didn't and wouldn't because of its greed, arrogance, and uh, stupidity, quite frankly. But the Power Five, you know, we're thinking like, smart business people, and they were trying to get ahead of a, a bad uh, outcome and, and a negative issue for them. And so they went to the NCAA and said, we want an entirely separate legislative process for the Power Five conferences. And we don't want to be dealing with the normal legislative process. And we want to be able to go straight through to pursue our own unique collective interests, five conference interests, in certain defined areas. And they got that through the autonomy classification. Okay, that, And they are the only autonomy conferences that have these special privileges. And they operate as an association within the NCAA association. But here's a new, the important thing. Autonomy legislation by the very terms of its grant by the NCAA and by the very terms 
of the governing documents that allow them to operate within their autonomy authority require cooperation by all of the Power Five. So you can't have conferences going rogue. And I mentioned this in my article in my blog on why the NCAA is winning the litigation war. And I really broke down the Austin injunction and talked about this bizarre transfer of, of authority over these education-related benefits to the Power Five. And I said, you know, not only are they not going to be competing for education-related benefits, the way that their autonomy power is structured in the NCAA umbrella requires collusion or cooperation, whatever you want to call it. Not a conference going off and doing their own thing to compete with the other four conferences. And that was the entire premise of the model that the athletes proposed to take the NCAA out of the monopolistic, monopsonistic control over these category of benefits, very limited benefits, and putting them in the control of these five conferences where theoretically they would be competing. There's no education-related arms race going on, and there's not going to be one. And the reason that that just kind of just sailed right through the oral argument on Wednesday is because nobody's educated the justices on that. And Judge Wilkin wasn't educated on that. I really believe that she thought that uh, transferring control of those education-related benefits over to the Power Five conferences was going to be a good thing. And, you know, how can it be a good thing when the when they're all defendants sitting in your courtroom taking the same position that those benefits shouldn't be offered at all? How can that be? And I guess it should be said that uh, Judge Wilkins' remedy in Austin was a hybrid of some suggested less restrictive alternatives that the athletes experts had proposed, which included something that went more to an open system of payment, but just taking the NCAA out of it. But in the final analysis, the the conferences were going to be in charge of this uh, shoot and match, not the NCAA. And you have to remember that the plaintiffs uh, Jeffrey Kessler sued the Power Five. They were named by the plaintiffs in the original complaint because they were co-conspirators with the NCAA in this market domination that resulted in horizontal price fixing in essentially a monopsonistic market. So how did they all of a sudden go from the bad guys to the good guys? It just doesn't make any sense. And that simply didn't get exposed. And it was covered up by the fact that the plaintiffs Plaintiff's attorneys elected not to challenge that aspect of Judge Wilkins' decision in their appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. It just disappeared. And now uh, Kessler is arguing in favor of those limitations. So you have this distorted view of the business model, distorted view of the market, distorted view of the market participants, and these incredibly consequential decisions are going to be framed and imposed within this vacuum of information and this vacuum of an understanding of the true business model. And that, I think, is just it's a downside of antitrust law. It's a downside of some of the justice issues that get excluded in those analysis. But it's also a product of the advocates not educating the decision makers the way they need to be. Uh, educated. And I don't know, you know, it'll be interesting to see what the court says and whether they even talk about get into that level of detail and how the injunction operates. But you would think that if they're going to affirm the Ninth Circuit's opinion, they're going to have to concede that the district court was correct in believing that the power five would solve the problem here. And that is a just a fundamental misunderstanding of the business of big time college sports. And I just want to talk about another way that the justices' ignorance of the business model and what the NCAA has been trying to do in Congress and in federal courts to achieve the iron throne of college sports regulation and its approach to compensation limits was in Justice Thomas's questions to Seth Waxman early on in the argument about the this disparity in placing all these draconian compensation limits on athletes, but then permitting coaches to make millions and millions and millions of dollars in a quote-unquote amateur enterprise. And Waxman, he defaults to law the NCAA, which we talked about in the last episode. And that was one of the cases I used as illustrative of antitrust principles. And the reason I chose it was because the compensation limits that the NCAA put on assistant men's basketball coaches, restricted earnings coaches of $16,000 a year, was an absolute compensation limit that is identical doctrinally to the limits that the NCAA puts on athletes, revenue-producing athletes, 
And that limit is set at the value of, of a full cost of attendance scholarship. So one of the things that, that should have been on the table, and again, this is something that Kessler could have pointed out, but Waxman got away with saying that they have no choice but to comply with the Tenth Circuit decision that ruled that those compensation limits were an outright slam dunk violation of antitrust laws because they are horizontal price fixing in a market in which the NCAA had absolute control. Okay, those same issues, the same issues identified by Justices Alito, Kagan, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch are present with with athlete compensation. So here's what Waxman says in response to that observation or that question by Justice Thomas. He says, so the NCAA previously had a rule that limited the amount of compensation that coaches could receive. It was challenged in the Tenth Circuit in a case called Law versus NCAA. The NCAA sought to defend that rule on the amateurism principle. And what the Tenth Circuit said was, look, rules that are reasonably designed to protect the amateur status of student athletes should be upheld in the twinkling of an eye. But coaches are not student athletes. They are professionals, just like professors and presidents. And therefore, the court applied full rule of reason review and struck down the limitation on coaches. So the NCAA is no longer permitted under the antitrust laws from in any way restricting the salaries of coaches and other professionals. Okay, so so that is how the NCAA characterizes law and justifies these identical compensation limits applied to two different participants in the marketplace. But what Waxman doesn't say, what Kessler didn't raise, what hasn't been part of, of any effort to educate the either Congress or the courts on the true business model and history of big time college sports is that after Board of Regents was decided, this started with Board of Regents, there was a fear that the very thing that has happened, this warp speed commercialization and professionalization of big time college sports would happen. And so there was discussion in Congress about granting the NCAA a broad enough antitrust immunity protection that would have basically eliminated Board of Regents, taken Board of Regents off the book, mooted Board of Regents, and then given the NCAA back its football empire, where the thinking was that with their rationing of the product and and kind of trying to spread it around to different components of the overall NCAA, that they were somehow pulling in the reins on commercialization and professionalization. But that didn't work in part, I believe, because of the lobbying of the big time football schools that won Board of Regents. And those are some very powerful flagship state universities. And they have enormous power today in Congress. And then after law, when there was all of this discussion in the Knight Commission and all these academic writers and all these people saying, coaches' salaries are the number one cause of out-of-control spending and corruption and it's a threat to the integrity and all of this stuff, there was no campaign uh, uh, built around capping coaches' salaries. There was no campaign by the NCAA or any group of schools in the membership to go to Congress. The NCAA could have gone to Congress and said, we need a bill here. This is a big problem. Everybody says it's a problem. Just read the Knight Commission's 2010 report, Restoring the Balance, which pointed to college coaching salary increases as the number one threat to the big-time college sports business model and the academic integrity of higher education. The number one threat. Okay, so they didn't put, you know, marshal their forces to run to the Senate to try to get an antitrust exemption that would have permitted them to cap coaching salaries. Seth Waxman now says, well, there's nothing we can do. We're, we're, we're stuck. The Tenth Circuit ruled. I mean, what are we going to do? Well, the same thing you're doing right now in this very case <laughs> with respect to athletes, which is to say, we're drawing the line in the sand here and over our dead bodies, will these athletes get a penny above the value of their athletic scholarship? It tells you what the NCAA's priorities are. It tells you what the Power Five's priorities are. And they have absolutely nothing to do with amateurism, the student athlete, the collegiate model, athlete well-being, the educational model any of that stuff. It has to do with preserving their revenue streams and eliminating external regulators who could compete with those revenue streams. And they don't want the athletes competing for those revenue streams. They don't want anybody. They got their gig done. It's set post-Board of Regents. Everybody's happy with the status quo and they will fight to the death to preserve it. And that's exactly what you saw in that oral argument from Seth Waxman on Wednesday. Okay. So just a couple of minutes on this conflation issue. And the NCAA does this in their propaganda. They've done it under uh, the banner of displacement 
movement and this name, image, and likeness debate. And the notion is that the interests of overwhelmingly white non-revenue athletes are on equal footing with the rights of the revenue-producing athletes who underwrite the entire industry. And so when they talk about 500,000 athletes, NCAA has 500,000 athletes across its three divisions. They're saying that the Alabama football team is on the same footing in the business model and in the goals and priorities of the NCAA and the member institutions as the lowest level division three school in a sport that, you know, is an outlier. That's just a lie. They, they aren't on equal footing. Those are different in kind. Those two products are different in kind rather than degree. And trying to conflate them is one way to delegitimize the interests of the revenue producing athletes who pay Mark Emmert's $4 million salary. So the other way that they do that is um, they talk about the 1,100 schools. I mean, there should be like a, a neon warning sign. Whenever an NCAA Power 5 representative uses either of those two numbers, you should just, you know, there should be a warning sign that says, grab your dignity, your common sense, and and turn off the volume <laughs> to wherever you're hearing it. So yeah, the NCAA has been brilliant in its public relations campaigns in conflating issues that are simply dishonest. And, and and they've done that to some academicians that have, even people who I think are critical of the business model and the interest of, of athletes, have recognized that the NCAA uses products outside of the Power Five to justify its amateurism principle in the context of preserving their nonprofit status. Because if you isolate the Power Five, and you know, there have been all these threats about the Power Five leaving. If the Power Five left the NCAA, a lot of their camouflage would be gone. I think that they would be subject to being deemed state actors under a Tarkanian Brentwood analysis. Their tax exempt status would be at risk because their claims that they're operating in an amateurism based industry would be ridiculous on their face because they are. And they wouldn't have, you know, there's 65 power five schools. So that means that there are, what does that make? Uh, 1,035 other schools, the vast majority of whom don't offer athletics scholarships or nominal scholarships. They have to pay for their athletics teams out of general operating revenue. And they're simply a different uh, beast. And the amateurism arguments have some rough correlation to the way that those products actually conduct their business. So that Power Five has been able to hide within those uh, other schools. So when the NCAA is talking about 500,000 student athletes in 1,100 schools, that is code to me for camouflage for uh, the amateur product and amateur status and the claims that the NCAA is operating as a legitimate educational nonprofit because they are supporting the educational outcomes for these kids. And again, the very definition of the relationship through an athletic scholarship turns that on its head. And I think I'm going to do an entire episode on this displacement concept that was ginned up uh, to justify opposition to name, image, and likeness. And that brings in a lot of these themes. And there was massive conflation there by some power five interests and uh, this outside group, Lead One, that hawks the interests of of Power Five athletics administrators, particularly athletics directors, and then some prominent athletics directors uh, in my neck of the woods who pushed this displacement theory. And it was just bad faith and bad news. And uh, I that didn't get called out properly in my judgment because it had obvious and really distressing racial connotations to the way that they framed that issue. But it's a, it was a conflation concept. And to understand the, the ways that the NCAA and the Power Five have conflated the interests to get what they want is just unconscionable in my judgment. And so, you know, we're going to we're going to talk about that in more detail. All right. So, gosh, does that do it? I think that that does it for this episode. I was kind of all over the map there, but so this will be the kind of the potpourri episode and uh, I think I'm going to title it. See, what did I decide I was going to title this thing? Iron Thrones, Omissions and Conflations. I might have to throw something else in there too, but hope uh hope you learned something and I will follow up on a lot of this stuff because I'm kind of still painting with a broad brush on the backside of this oral argument. And I really want to get to this prisoner's dilemma episode that I think will help explain this tension between the NCAA and the Power 5. I'm, I'm going to talk more specifically about the history of the Power 5 
the conference realignment, and really it's, it's a continuum in my judgment from the early days of the College Football Association through to the current iteration of the Power Five conferences. And what exists today is far more powerful on so many levels than what existed in the 1970s through the College Football Association. And it's important to understand all that, to understand the nature of the prisoner's dilemma that exists between the NCAA and the big-time powerful football schools. So thanks for joining. Always happy to have you listening. And I hope you will be back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Thank you.